you've had a wonderful day so far. Happy to see everybody in God's house this morning. As we prepare to worship, uh, please make your way into the sanctuary, and uh, let's spend a moment in prayer before we worship. Won't you stand with me? Heavenly Father, for this beautiful day, uh, for another day of life, Lord, we just give you thanks. Uh, we just rejoice over so many things, Lord, uh, the way you bless us and provide for us each day. Help us to be filled with, with thankfulness, with joy, um, and just with awe at all that you have done. Lord, as we gather together, help us to bless each other in fellowship, help us to glorify you in worship, and help us to know you better through your word as we study. So, Heavenly Father, as we continue, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
hope is in you.
Trouble. 
majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Who is like you? Majestic in truly there is none like you, majestic in all that you do, Lord, in your works, in your creations, and in your love for us. Lord, help us to be fully focused and centered on you, what you have done, and who you are this morning as we continue. Lord, we love you. We thank you again for this time. Pray that you would bless it and that you would go before us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you say hello to those around you?
Well, good morning. Glad to have you with us this morning. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Franklin. I got to tell you again, it's music to my ears to hear that. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. Hey, uh, let me just throw this out before I forget. Um, uh, for anybody in here who might be a thief, close your ears for a minute. I got to just say something. Uh, we're, we're noticing a lot of stuff being left around, things like purses and iPads and things like that. Um, we're very, very thankful for all the new folks that are coming in everything, but we don't always know who's coming in and that kind of stuff. You may just want to keep your stuff kind of near you just in case. You never know. Uh, we've never had anything I'm aware of stolen and that kind of thing, but, you know, just, just be aware that if you leave your purse sitting around, you know. So anyway, just thought I'd mention that. So, all right, a couple of things going on. I just wanted to go ahead and share. Um, uh, as you know, in our, uh, in our bulletin and then also on our weekly email, we uh, share a bunch of prayer requests, things that people are making known to us that they need prayer for. We would invite you to please continue to pray for all of those. Uh, and, uh, and if you have a prayer request, please feel free to share it with us. Uh, send it to our uh, church's email address at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. We'll make sure we include you in our prayer list so we can lift you up. Uh, that said, um, if you're not on our church email list and you'd like to be, uh, you can do uh, one of two things. I prefer the first. It'd be a little easier. The first would be to fill out one of those forms in the back and say, please add me to the email list. It'll ask for your name, your email address, your phone number, that kind of stuff. Whatever that information you're comfortable sharing with us, feel free to do that. We'll put you in our directory so you can find out what's going on around here on a regular basis. And also we share prayer requests and those kinds of things. Uh, the other option is to just jot that on a piece of scratch paper and hand it to me and make me do it. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But in, in either way, just uh, make sure it's in the offering box there, and then it'll get to where it needs to get to, and we'll make sure we get you on the directory. Uh, we'd love to be able to just make sure you're always aware of what's going on. Also, in uh, the event of bad weather, we'll put it on our Facebook page if we're canceling a, a Wednesday night or something like that. We just want to make sure that we can do our best to communicate when things are going on. Um, speaking of prayer meetings, our next Monday night right now is going to pick up in August on the 8th. Uh, our young adults group meets after church on uh, many of our Sunday mornings. Uh, I think Andrew makes it a point to connect with everybody on that when they do that. So uh, I don't know if we're meeting, they're meeting today. I don't see Andrew, so I'm, I'm not sure about that. But if you are, he would have contacted you about that. If you'd like to learn more about our young adults group, uh, you can come see me or my wife, Julie, about it. Or if you see Andrew and Bree around, they're not here this morning, but we'll be glad to share more about that. It's a kind of 20-something group. And so if you're a young person in that age group and you'd like to sort of hang out with others your age and that kind of thing, I can't tell you, like with Julie and I, uh, and actually the Durkins, uh, Brian and Julie Durkin, uh, uh, back in our old church in Illinois, we just had a whole group of 20-somethings uh, that just were great for each other, you know, and it was, it was wonderful just to have that. So I encourage you to get involved in that. Um, and then uh, our mommy and kiddo summer meetups, those are on either Tuesdays or Thursdays. Nicole Fredenberg uh, goes ahead and contacts the women who have kids, little kids that want to get together, the moms and everything. And so that's a pretty cool thing. Our midweek gathering is actually not meeting this Wednesday night. Uh, this Wednesday we will not meet, but the following Wednesday we will pick up our study in the Minor Prophets. And on Monday mornings, uh, many of you are aware the women's studies have been going on for some time. Thursday. Did I say Monday. Oh, it, okay. It, it, yeah, it should be Thursday. So uh, on Thursday mornings and Thursday evenings, the women have been meeting for a Bible study for the last five, six weeks, and those have come to an end. But there is a Thursday morning prayer meeting at our house that Julie's hosting. Uh, so ladies, if you'd like to come out to that at 10 o'clock on Thursday mornings, we'd encourage that. Uh, and then, our, of course, our Friday uh, outreach at uh, NHC here in Cool Springs. 
uh, other things going on. We're uh, planning on putting together a baptism, which I think uh, we picked the 20th, I think, of August, right? So as long as that's still good on uh, Wishbone Ranch, we're going to go ahead and meet at the Walker's house. They've got a stream, a crick out back. And we're going to go ahead and uh, invite any who would like to be baptized to go ahead and sign up in the back, and that's where we'll meet for that on Saturday, the 20th of August. Prior to that, we'll have sort of a, I hesitate to call it a class per se, but we'll have a meeting after one of our Sunday services, and we'll talk a, a bit about what baptism is all about. For those who have questions about it, uh, if you haven't been baptized, we of course encourage that, but we want to make sure we know what that's all about. But um, there's a sign-up sheet in the back, as there is for our Sunday shootout coming up on August 7th. If you are a firearms owner, I know this sounds like a perfectly churchy thing to do, right? <laughs> Um, but uh, if you are a firearms owner, I know some of you are new firearms owners. Uh, there is a range down there in Spring Hill called the Charlie Havner Memorial Range. Uh, I've been a member now for a number of years. It is a great place to learn how to safely handle and accurately use a firearm. If you have one, let me encourage you not to ever touch it until you've done something like this. You want to learn how to use it properly and safely. So that's one opportunity to do that. We're asking for a $20 person donation. You'll bring your own gun, your own ammo. Likely people will have an extra pistol or something like that you can learn to shoot with if you don't have one. But um, if you have more questions about that, you can ask me about that. That'll be after church on the 7th. Um, also, our church's uh, children's ministry teams are looking for help. I know the nursery is looking for helpers. Uh, it is a two-week commitment. So it's on two weeks, off for six weeks. There's enough helpers currently where you could be on for two, then you'd be off for six. And so the more helpers we have in these ministries, uh, the more time you have in the sanctuary, and then you get to serve periodically as well and use your giftings with the kids. Uh, Sunday school is a similar situation. I think they're planning on doing a weekly rotation there. Uh, and so uh, we encourage you to get involved in that ministry. We will ask you to fill out a ministry application. We will do a background check on you to make sure that, you know, you're okay to put with kids and all that kind of thing. We, we do take that very seriously here. And so that's uh, part of the thing, but we would really love to have you get involved if you'd like to serve in that capacity. Uh, there's going to be a women's conference at Calvary Chapel Columbia on August 27th. Uh, there is a website where you can learn more and register for that. And then our fall men's retreat is going to be on November 3rd and 4th at Deer Run in Thompson Station. Uh, guys, we're going to have just a sweet time together. Can I use that word with men? We're going to have a good time together with the Lord worshiping and spending time in the Word and in fellowship together. Uh, you know, the women have been doing all the events, so I have to use words like sweet. I just have to get that out of my vocabulary now. It's guys' time. So anyway, but uh, so if you'd like to go to that, we'd love to have you come to that. And so there's a sign-up sheet. Uh, like all these other events, there's a sign-up sheet in the back that we'd ask you to sign up for so we can get a good head count and uh, make sure that accommodations are all set up and everything. So, um, okay, well, the, le- the rest I will leave to you to read in your bulletin. What I will ask you to do now is stand as we read the Word of God together. We're going to actually invite you to open to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 and 14. I was just going to ask you. Thank you. Isn't that? Yeah. She can tell when my mouth is getting dry or something. He needs his coffee. Thank you, dear. Uh, Okay. So chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Let's read these together. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, 
having nailed it to the cross. Amen. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that we are free and forgiven, free from the penalty of our sin, all because Jesus has taken it upon his shoulders. The grace that he has demonstrated toward us in this regard is something that is hard to imagine. But Father, we are grateful that this demonstrates your great love. And we thank you for this time that we can consider these things. We ask you by your Holy Spirit to lead us, that he would take these words that we read from the page and ultimately find them, uh, bring them to a place where they find and take root in our hearts. We thank you for, again, your love and how it is shown through giving us opportunities to get to know you better. So help that to take place here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. Okay, well, some weeks ago, we began our study in the letter to the Ephesians, uh, a letter that was to a church that Paul knew well. He had established that church. Uh, he had um, invested in it three years. Uh, even after he had left it for the final time, he invited the elders of that church, of the bodies of believers that were gathered around the city, and he invited them to come to him, and he invested in them again one last time where he warned them about the ravenous wolves that would rise up after his departure. And, uh, and he wanted the, the shepherds there, the pastors, the leaders in those churches to be aware that, um, that Sunday mornings weren't going to be a cakewalk, that helping people to grow in their faith was going to involve challenge and struggle. And so he basically made no bones about the fact that Believing in Jesus was going to come under attack by those who didn't, and they needed to be ready for that, and they needed to condition and train their people to understand that, uh, if I could borrow from Warren Wearsby, that the Christian life is not uh, a playground, it's a battleground. And so we would see Paul speaking of these things, and in uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, it is, uh, should be no surprise that when he spoke to Timothy about this, uh, these very things in places like First and Second Timothy chapters 4 in both of those books, uh, in particular, where he spoke about those things coming. Timothy would pastor, the, uh, uh, be the overseer of the churches in Ephesus for a time himself. And so this was something he took very seriously. Now, this, by the way, does not lay the groundwork for the very topic we're going to talk about today, but I say it because it is important for us to study theology, to understand what the scriptures have to say. That's not something just for people who, who teach groups. This is for every believer. Um, and it's important that we understand that. Now, granted, not everybody's going to sit down and, and buy bookshelves full of commentaries and, and, and all those kinds of things, but all of us should understand that the Christian life is fed and nourished by things like devotional times, but it is fortified and undergirded by serious Bible study. When somebody comes to us and, and, and challenges our own faith or comes to us with a different belief system and we want to share the gospel with them, it is important that we understand how to do that and then what the gospel actually is. Um, this, by the way, is why when we took a little time, uh, both on our Sunday morning and even on our daily post, to talk about some of the very tough subjects that we did in regard to um, this lofty idea of election and predestination, those kinds of things. These are not topics that I particularly relish talking about because I can see the fear in many people's eyes when we touch on these things. Um, I would much rather see smiles on everybody's face, hearing happy, clappy kinds of things all the time. But you know, the truth of the matter is, is that and believe me, I'm the last person to say this, but if you have a diet that is based entirely on sugar and no vegetables, you're going to not be very healthy. My wife's looking at me like, what? 
Really? You? But, you know, the truth of the matter is you need to have a healthy diet because if you don't, you're unhealthy. And so, therefore, we talk about what the scriptures talk about, even though sometimes they can be uncomfortable. But when we don't do those things, we send a couple of implicit, when a pastor doesn't do those things, if I don't do those things, it sends an implicit message. It sends a message that these things are not that important, that you can sort of get by and just sort of skip over the parts that maybe are uncomfortable and difficult. Um, I don't believe that, and I don't want you to believe that either. And so we take time to look at these things. Now, our topic today actually is a very uh, refreshing, beautiful topic to spend time on. And I'm going to go ahead and read in Ephesians chapter uh, 1 and invite you to read along. You don't have to read out loud if you want, but you're welcome to, actually. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8, and this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, or wisdom uh, and understanding is what that word uh, basically means. And Father, we want to thank you for this central truth that we're going to spend time on this morning. We thank you that at the end of our story is the beginning of eternity. When we take our last breath here and we find ourselves in your presence, uh, that will be a time of rich, enduring celebration and joy. In your presence truly is fullness of joy. And we thank you that it is because you are our portion that we rejoice in it, not only then, but even now, as we consider the fact that we are redeemed that we're forgiven, that we are standing with a right standing in your presence even now, all because of Jesus. And so we thank you for the gospel, the good news, and we pray that you'd help us as we dig into it a little bit today to have a deeper understanding of just how rich your grace really is. Thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, Verse 7 starts by reminding us that it is in him, or literally in whom, is what the Greek actually says there. Uh, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, ultimately through his blood. Uh, In him, it is in the person of Christ that we have redemption, that we have forgiveness of sins. Now, there are a couple of things here that I want to just take a moment on. First off, it is in him as opposed to all others. There are many messages out there that would have us believe that if we believe these things, we'll be happy or we'll feel satisfied or fulfilled or we'll, we'll satisfy some spiritual need that we have. But the gospel makes very clear, unambiguously, and not by implying, it is explicit. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. And therefore, it is in him. He is the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Um, Secondly, it is in him personally, the person. The Christian faith is not uh, just another set of religious principles, do's and don'ts, noble truths, things like this. Instead, the gospel is rooted in the very person of Christ. You can believe a lot of very Christian things, and you can live out a very Christian-looking life and not be saved. Matter of fact, I did that for about 22 years of my life. And so did some of you for more or less of that time. Because most of us believed growing up that if we were good people, then God would smile upon us and on our death and we'd go and be in heaven. Uh, or some version of that. 
whether it was an official religion or whether it was just your own personal belief. Surely the universe will look kindly on me if I put enough good energy into it or something like that, as is now commonly spoken of. The gospel is that in him we have redemption. It is in a relationship with the person of Christ, acknowledging who he is, God incarnate in the flesh, who did something for us that we could never do ourselves. And that is to take the weight and and guilt and shame of our sin, all of it, the penalty that we deserved, and take it upon his own shoulders, go to the cross and die in payment for that, and then rose from the dead again the third day. This, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, is the gospel. And in no one else do we find redemption or forgiveness. You and I can forgive one another, and that's good. We should. We can redeem coupons. Uh, Now, of course, I'm being a little silly, but the idea of redemption carries with it some pretty weighty ideas, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But whereas you and I might extend some of these kinds of things to one another, this is good and right, but it does not ultimately satisfy our offense to God. When you and I wrong each other, the reason we can even say that is because there is such a thing as right and wrong, because it is possible to commit an offense, a sin towards somebody. And the reason that's true is because God has told us what is right and wrong. Right and wrong exist because God has deemed it so, and he has let us in on that. And so therefore, all offenses ultimately are violations of his law and his right and wrong and his, you know, decree of what is good and bad and all these different things. And so you and I might wrong each other, but there is a far greater wrong that has been committed ultimately in that. And so we might forgive one another, but there is a larger forgiveness that was also in need of being dealt with. And the reason I talk about it in past-sounding terms is because it was dealt with once and for all, in Christ. And that is why Paul can say it is in him that we have redemption. It is because of that offering of Christ that this is now available. It is now given. It is now there. It is finished. It is why no no gospel that is based on the idea of our efforts is a true gospel. It's the reason why Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, not my list of do's and don'ts, not my religious system. Don't get me wrong. There is a theology to the Christian faith. There is this idea of holy living and that kind of thing. But when we put the cart before the horse in the gospel and we say that our good Christian living precedes receiving the grace and forgiveness that has been afforded us, we have not the gospel, we actually have instead very bad news. Because that implies that there is something we have to do, and maybe even have to do to keep it, once we have it. It is always on our shoulders. Now that's not only bad news on a personal level, because we're all recognize how we can stumble and fall, but it is also a misrepresentation of the gospel. In him, in the person of Christ, He is Lord, and he has risen from the dead, and he has taken my debt. And now, therefore, by faith, because of his grace, I am free. And if you're a believer in Christ, so are you. 
And that is the most liberating message that could ever be shared. And so when a Christian reads a passage like this, when the Ephesian believers read these words, in him we have redemption, present tense. It is currently ours. It's very similar to what John wrote in his first epistle when he said, These things we write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is not something that will happen later. It's something you presently have now. Now, we don't experience it to the fullness that we will in heaven. When we're in the new heavens and new earth and we're face-to-face with God and we get to dwell around the throne and worship and this kind of thing, there is a, a degree to which it will just explode into our experience at that moment. But even now, it is a present possession of believers. And thankfully, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, there is ultimately nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Peter would say something very similar in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. And by the way, if you're saying, man, you said that last week and the week before. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm saying these things again and again so that we will understand and embrace and live with the understanding that this is the context in which we live as believers. Peter spoke about this untaintable reward that is kept in heaven for you who are kept, same word, by the power of God. Whose power? His power. And so as believers, we can live our lives without fear that we're going to fall out of the grace of God, that somehow we'll stumble and say, oh, surely Jesus didn't die for that. He actually did. This is the beauty of the gospel. In him we have redemption. Now, the idea of redemption speaks of being freed from the bondage of sin. This is what the concept of redemption meant, even on a practical societal level. Uh, This term speaks of the idea of paying someone's ransom. Uh, It's the kind of word you would use in regard to slaves on the block, the idea that a, a person would pay to buy that slave and then set them free. Okay, actually, the forgiveness part is where the setting free comes in there. I'm kind of beginning to blend these ideas, but we'll get there in a minute. But the idea of being paid for, being taken off of that place and being brought into the possession of somebody else, your debt has been paid, ransomed. Um, the idea of freedom can apply here as well, because you could also use a term like this in regard to something like Uh, Someone being held hostage and a ransom being paid. They are now no longer in that condition because the, the amount was paid. That's the idea of what redemption is about. We are now presently having been paid for. Now connect that with the idea of forgiveness. Now forgiveness speaks of a need that addresses the actual condition that we're in. Now we've mentioned this before too. You and I are sinners not just because we sin. What? You're not just a sinner because you sin, you sin because you're a sinner. It is what we do by nature. Uh, A number of times in the New Testament, we are referred to as having been children of wrath, sold under sin. That speaks to our actual being. This is why in 2 Corinthians 5.17, when it says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, old things pass away, behold, all things become new, That speaks to both dealing with the issue that we had, but it also speaks to the fact that we are now something different than we were before. 
You who once were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, right? The idea that you were once one thing, now you're something different in Christ. You are fundamentally a different person now, at least positionally. We know this to be true. In terms of our behaviors, we still find ourselves subject to the flesh, but positionally speaking, we are living from a very different perspective and a very different foundation than we ever had before. More on that as we make our way through. But the idea of forgiveness speaks of both our being conceived in sin and having been forgiven, not just for what we did, but for what we were. Uh, we mentioned before David in, um, uh, in Psalm 51 would talk about how in sin he was conceived in his mother's womb. And again, we've talked about this too. This doesn't mean that the act of his conception was sin, but rather it speaks to the fact that from the very beginning of his origin as a human being, the very point of conception, he was born in sin. He existed as a sinner, having done nothing. But even he, under an Old Testament context, understands it's not just what I do, it's what I am. And this is why being born again is such an important concept. This is why we talk in these terms, because it's not just solving the problem of having committed some boo-boos in my life. Hey, I'm not perfect, but who is? That kind of thing. If we think of sin that way, we're not understanding our true condition. It's not just about what you and I do. It's about what we are. And this is what Jesus came to change. He made us a new creation in Christ. Freedom speaks of the idea of pardon. It speaks of the idea of of being freed from the penalty and acts of your sin as though you had never committed them. In the Old Testament, there's an example of this that we see, and it's the concept of the scapegoat. Some of you know this. In Leviticus chapter 16, there is this description of, on the Day of Atonement, the idea of having these two goats One would ultimately, a lot would be cast for this goat and a lot would be cast for a second goat. One would be the Lord's goat. And upon this goat, uh, there would be, uh, you know, it's it's death and it's offering, it's blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat and all of this kind of thing, the, the payment for sin. This concept in both Leviticus 17 and in Hebrews 9, the idea that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. The second goat would be brought before the priest who would lay hands on it and confess all the sins of the people on that goat. And then a worthy person would take this goat out to the wilderness and release it and let it run off. Presumably, you just the idea being you'd never see it again. The idea of our sin being cast away as if to be forgotten and never seen again. Of course, the picture of Christ in this is, is apparent. It's very apparent. But this is the idea of forgiveness, pardon, the idea that our sins have been taken away to be remembered no more. Now, one of the beauties of God's grace is that God can't actually forget things. You know, we said last week, God can do anything. He can't do anything. He can't be less than perfect. He can't violate his nature. And there's things he can't do. One of the things he can't do is forget, which means that when he says, your sins I remember no more, that is an act of volition to no longer hold over us something that we deserve to be found guilty of. That is God's grace toward us. He treats us as though we had never sinned. That's why the word justified is sometimes broken down and defined as just as if I had never sinned. 
the idea that we're free. This is the idea of redemption and forgiveness. And as Paul goes on to say here, uh, this is according, well, first off, it's through his blood, and it's according to the riches of his grace. But through his blood, in other words, by means of his shed blood, from the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, after man had fallen, man had sinned, broken God's law, disobeyed, did what you know they thought they should do rather than doing what God said to do, um, they tried to cover themselves. They sewed together foliage, fig leaves, this kind of thing. They, they basically stitched together some clothing to cover their nakedness because for the very first time, they were experiencing shame. Their life was pure innocence. You know, when it says naked and unashamed and that kind of thing, the idea was that there was, there was no, there was no f- sin nature. There was no looking at things from a distorted view. There was no seeing thing as anything as anything less than perfect and beautiful just as God made it. And then they violated it. And they felt shame. They were guilty. Something that, however long they were in the garden, you know, we get to it in chapter two and three, right? We see this thing unfold. We don't know how much time they were in the garden before this happened. So whatever length of time that was, and we can presume it was more than just like a day or two, you know, Adam's name and animals and stuff. Some time has gone by, right? And then he brings the woman to him. They fall into sin. And now here they are feeling guilt and shame. And they try to hide it. And God comes looking for them. That's a very important principle. God came looking for them. They were hiding from God in their shame, but he went looking for them. And I, every time we come to that, I, I'm, I'm very interested one day to hear what God's voice sounded like when he called out to Adam. Guys, notice, the woman fell first, but God went looking for the man. Okay, there's a lesson in that. That'll preach our place to over, you know, as a guardian over our wives and that kind of thing. But there are those that when they think of God, they think of him as angry. Now, the Bible says he's angry against sin. And sometimes we can clearly see that he has a, a wrath for sinners as well. We don't want to diminish that. But God's desire is that people turn. So some people hear God's voice as, Adam, where are you? I don't think that was it, though. I don't think that was the way God was calling to Adam. Adam was already hiding. Adam knew he'd failed. Eve knew she failed. Adam, where are you? Again, I can't claim to know how that sounded. But there is an invitation in this, right? Where are you? And I don't think it was geographical. No, where are you? I, can't, I don't know where you are, you know? No, where are you, son? What happened? And again, it's not that God didn't know what happened. God wanted Adam and Eve to tell him what happened. And after, of course, they begin to, oh, it's the woman you gave me, God. It's really all your fault. Ultimately, if you, you you know, this is all according to your divine will. You know, if you would have just given me a better woman. I'm just messing around. That's bad. But, But he passes the buck. And then she does the same thing. Well, it's a serpent. Now, she wasn't wrong. I mean, the serpent came in and and deceived them. But at the end of the day, they were guilty for their sin. They had disobeyed. God had said clearly what was right and what was wrong, and there was only one rule. 
in their whole existence, there was one thing that he said not to do. And they did it. And there go we, but by the grace of God, right? If you've seen two, you've seen them all. But as, they, as they're now before the Lord, and he, of course, sees that they have covered themselves, he essentially says, that won't do. And in verse 21, it tells us that he instead covered them with skins of animals. It doesn't just say covered them. He tells us how he covered them, with animal skins. Well, where do those animal skins come from? The cost of sin was now, for the very first time, beginning to be recognized. And hence, from the very beginning, there is this principle that runs throughout Scripture that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Now, of course, that first, those first animals that were killed for those skins uh, didn't actually take away their sin, but for the first time, they began to understand this principle of their sin being covered. And it had to be covered by God. Their efforts would not be up to snuff. Their efforts could never really accomplish that. God has to do that. All part of this idea of redemption. At the end of the day, the redemption doesn't come, and forgiveness is not achieved or arrived at or, or, or accomplished by anything less than God's own effort, his own purposes, his own means, and in particular, by means of the blood of Christ. This is, the, this is the expression of God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is what giving his son meant. That whoever would believe in him, again, not do a certain number of works or a certain quality or quantity of works, whatever, any of that, but who would believe would not perish. And by perish mean be separated from God in hell for all eternity as deserved but rather have eternal life. This is the good news. By means of his shed blood, his substitutionary atonement is the theological term for this. The idea of his taking upon himself our guilt and shame, our, our, our debt, and paying for it. Again, I'll quote the verse I've been quoting pretty much every week for about the last year. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is a passage that is worthy of deep consideration. This is what he has done for us. It is by or through the means of his own shedding of his own blood. And so therefore we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Of course, this again is because of the richness or the riches of his grace. Now, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, or much more, or far more greatly. In other words, where as far as your sin reached, as far as it went, as red as your ledger got, his grace went further. You can't out-sin God's grace. Don't try it. I mean, you know, don't misunderstand me. But for those who are here who are thinking, okay, well, that sounds really great. But if you knew that I had done this, if you knew that I made this choice, if you knew that I had hurt this person this badly, 
if you knew what kind of person I really was. Well, the good news is it doesn't matter if I know it about you. And you probably are better off if I were sitting on the throne and you told me some of these things. It might not go well for you. But the good news is it's not me or anyone sitting around you who is sitting on the throne. And God already does know that about you. As a matter of fact, he knew that about you before you were ever born. There's nothing you've ever done. There's nothing you've ever, no sin you've ever committed. There's no lifestyle choice that you've ever made that God was not aware of before you ever breathed your first, before you ever conceived in the womb. And the truth of the matter is, every one of us, no matter what the expression of this might have found, every one of us, like David, was in sin, conceived even in the womb. So we've all started at the same place. Some of us may have just gone on different routes of expressing that sin nature. And while Jesus is forgiving your sin, he is forgiving something far greater than just the activity that you've committed. He is forgiving you for what you not just have done, but for what you are. And he's changing you into something new as a believer in Christ. This is the depth of the gospel. This is why we take our time considering these things. This is not a light thing to just say, oh, great, I'm forgiven, awesome, and just move on. It's important that we consider the depth of this. As a matter of fact, when you you consider the next passage, he says, his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, in other words, in all knowledge and understanding. The idea here is that we would delve into these things that we would seek to understand these things, that they would not remain sort of a light thing to us, but that we would understand just how far God reached and just how far he went to change us and make us something different. And the reason that that matters so much, our positional standing before God, the reason this matters so much is because it affects the way that we view our standing with God in space and time, in life, and how we live All of us should seek to live holy, godly lives in Christ Jesus. This is the encouragement of Scripture. But the motivation behind that can vary greatly. In other words, you and I might try to be really good people before God because we think that if we're not, he's going to zap us. Or if we don't, then we're going to fall outside of his grace and somehow I'll have to make my way back in or some kind of thing. That's, That's living a holy life out of fear. You know, John says, perfect love casts out fear. Now, I've heard a lot of people use that verse in a lot of different ways just to say, look, if you're afraid of something, just know that perfect love casts out fear. There is truth to that. Resting in God and this kind of thing and knowing that we're in his hands and all that. I mean, that does bring a certain measure of peace and safety. But you know the context in which John is talking about that? Fear of judgment. Perfect love casts out the fear of judgment. In other words, if you know that God loves you, if you know that God has demonstrated that love by paying, again, not just the debt of what you've done, but he's gone as far as to change you completely. If you know that he's done this for you, you have no reason to fear judgment. When we respond to that, that's different. If I'm afraid of God, so I try and make sure I do what's right so he doesn't get mad at me, that's one motivation. 
and a lot of us live under that. But the Bible encourages a very different, and, and provides the means for a very different motivation. Because I am accepted in the Beloved, because I am now His, and because He has changed me and my positional standing before Him, if I died in the next five minutes with unconfessed sin, I would still go to heaven because of what He's already done. Now, if I've wronged you, I want to make sure that I confess that to you and make right. I don't want to live with that. But my standing before God remains unchanged because now he sees me through the merits and finished work of Christ, which have been now appropriated to me by God's grace received by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Turn to it. Let's read it again. Some of you, of course, can recite this, but it's important that we know this. And if this is a new passage to you, I want you to listen to these words. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is a gift from him. He has given it to us, and we are saved by it. It's by his grace, totally. That is worth plumbing the depths of. Not only does it change our motivation for holy living, now we are living in response to grace rather than by the mistaken view that we are earning grace. We're living in response to it. Lord, thank you for what you've done. I know what I am. I know the kind of wretch that I am. But you saved me from this. I, I mean, there are times I literally get very, very choked up thinking about that truth. And I'm not just trying to sound spiritual I know what I've been redeemed from. I know the weight of my sin. And I don't relish in considering and remembering those things or what I used to be. But when I think about what I was and the way that found expression in my life and I realize what I am now in Christ, that is a very emotional thing for me. And for that reason, I'm thankful that he had lavished that grace upon me and invites me now to consider it deeply. It causes me to want to worship and thank him. It causes me to want to be more and more like Jesus anywhere I can be. I want to be like the one who did that for me. That's what grace has the power to do. Has the power to motivate us to wanting to be like him because we love him because we appreciate all that he's done. That's the beauty of grace, and that's worth considering. Well, I'm going to stop there because we're going to share in the Lord's Supper today. I will take a moment if anyone has a question or anything about anything we talked about today. If you do, you can just go ahead and raise your hand or shout it out or whatever. If not, we'll go ahead and move on. All right. Okay, well, let me go ahead and pray. And what we'll do is enter into a time of worship and partaking of the Lord's Supper and the bread and the cup. Um, as we do, by the way, just some quick instruction before we pray. Um, there's not an aisle on the sides. And so as the communion trays come your way, take the cup with the wafer and everything, and then pass the tray back to the middle and the ushers will bring it to the next row uh, next. And then that's how we'll manage it. Um, and then uh, during our worship here during this time, I'll invite you to 
take a moment as we're worshiping and just come before the Lord with thanksgiving and praise as we remember what he's accomplished for us. And we'll partake together in the midst of the song. We'll stop along the way and we'll take the bread. We'll stop along the way and take the cup. So, Father, thank you for your grace toward us. Thank you for your deep and abiding love. We thank you that even though we were in the worst place we could ever be, born in a situation that was completely hopeless, that, Father, you sent your Son to redeem us. And in him and in his shed blood, we find this redemption, this forgiveness from our sins. We thank you that he has finished the work. It is paid in full. There remains nothing left for us to do other than just simply receive. And so thank you for giving us your grace, the expression of your love as you forgave us for all, past, present, and future. As we partake of the bread and the cup, we just desire to do so with a right heart, to do so in a worthy way. We want to recognize and appreciate what it is we're doing here as we remember this sacrifice that Jesus made. And so I want to start by inviting any here who today have never come and made a commitment to Christ, who've never put their trust in the one who paid for their sins, washed them clean, took their debt. If that's you, I invite you to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. Having heard these things today, I realize that my efforts will never change that. It is only Jesus who makes me new. And so I put my trust in him now. And thank you for the forgiveness and the redemption that is now mine because of Christ and his offering on the cross, where he died and was buried and three days later rose again. I believe this, and I put my faith in him. I ask you to help me in the rest of my days to learn of him and to walk with him, thanking you for the grace that is there when I fall and the grace that will uphold me as I stand before you one day in your presence. Forgiven, free, all of these things, Lord, in Jesus. So we thank you and praise you for this. I thank you and praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to partake, so I'll invite the worship team to come on up and lead us in song, and I'll invite the ushers to come and pass out communion. And again, if you would, send it down the aisle, and, or down the road, then to the aisle, and we'll pass it back forward. Oops. This is the way that I have 
Take a long look inside and tell me what you see. He said, Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Disciples, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. And so we take this bread in remembrance of what Jesus did when he went to the cross, and his body was broken for us. And so, together, let's take the bread. This is the bread of life, broken for you. This is the cup that holds the wine of the new. This is the love of Christ poured out anew. This is the Son of God who died for you. Before you eat, before you drink, take a long look inside and tell me what you see. He said, do this. supper was ended, he took the cup. Again, he shared this with his disciples, and he said, this is the cup of the blood of the new covenant, shed for the remission of the sins of many. And so as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. This is the way that I have made for you.
Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace toward us. Thank you for Jesus and the offering he made on our behalf, becoming sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We exalt him. We praise his great and awesome name. We consider him in moments like these with great thanksgiving and great humility. Father, we pray that as we leave this place, we would leave it with the understanding that as believers, as your children, we are accepted in the beloved, and our lives can become a shining reflection of your glory, trophies of your grace. And Father, help us to remember that that's what we are, that ultimately, at our very best, it's not about us. It's about what you've done in us, through us, and for us. Thank you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand and sing a closing song together? Let's sing glory to his name, the last verse. Come to this fountain so rich and sweet, cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to his name. Bless you all. Have a wonderful week.